how great you are, we understand to some point, and we praise you for that. Um, um, and I personally praise you for your sovereignty this morning, uh, even though our, word, our world and our friends and extended family seem to be falling apart sometimes. We know you are sovereign, and we pray you, praise you for that and, and depend on you for that. Um, we thank you for this time to come together to worship to listen to your word, to listen um, to what you'd have us here through Pastor Mike. Uh, we pray that you open our hearts and our minds um, and tune us to, have, to the way you'd want us through your word and your sermon today. So bless this time and um, bless this word and, um, and all the things that Mike's done to prepare, us, prepare for us this morning. In your son's name, amen. So... In the Pew Bibles, page 878, we're going to read Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Page 878, or Luke 19, 1 through 10. This is the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. I want to draw your attention this morning uh, to the danger of spiritual insulation. Yes, the danger of spiritual insulation. Now, we all know what um, insulation is in our, in our homes, that pink fibrous stuff that goes in the walls and, and in the attic. And when we're having a, a very hot um, July or August day, which uh, we've been having these last couple days and as it's almost October, that insulation uh, keeps that hot air outside of our home and keeps the, uh, the cool air uh, inside. And in the wintertime, that insulation does the opposite. The uh, wood stove or the furnace uh, heats up the house, and that insulation keeps that cold and biting air uh, outside. Spiritual or, uh, insulation for our homes is a good thing. Uh, insulation for our souls is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. And the experts 
the certified experts at installing uh, spiritual installation in the New Testament are the Pharisees. And they have a, a plan for holiness. And their plan for holiness is to insulate themselves uh, from sinners, to insulate themselves from anything that would contaminate them. Now, the problem, there are a lot of problems uh, with that uh, plan to achieve holiness. Now, one of the problems, uh, Mark just read about the very last verse in this uh, story about Zacchaeus, is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save sinners. And so to insulate ourselves from those who may be troublesome, those who we may look at as immoral, those that we may look at as extremely dangerous, is, is not going to help us actually pursue holiness. So uh, spiritual insulation is a very dangerous thing. The Pharisees' a picture of the church, if they had to have a building as an image for what the church of Jesus Christ is, they might have a fortress with a moat around it and with a wall and with, with barbed wire to keep uh, anything that is uh, immoral or a sinful people out. That is the image that they might have in mind. But the image that we have in the New Testament of what the church should be uh, is something completely different than that. If I was going to pick a, a, a building, it would, it would probably be a hospital to uh, picture the image of what the church of Jesus Christ should be but not uh, an ordinary hospital like uh, we might have around here with a couple parking spaces for those who are spiritually uh, or those who are physically needy and we have a couple emergency parking spaces so that they are welcomed and they can come in at any time. That's kind of how our hospitals operate. If they're, they're just ready to receive you. But the kind of hospital, the kind of church that we see on the pages of the New Testament is very different. It would be the kind of hospital that has a whole fleet of ambulances, dozens or hundreds or thousands of ambulances that are willing to seek and to save the lost, to travel over mountains and, and through city streets, to go after people. That is the image that we have in the heart of God, and that is the image that we have uh, in the church in the New Testament. So today we are going to look at a couple uh, parables parables that challenge us to seek and to save the lost, and parables that show us the danger of spiritual insulation, because the reality is that you and I have pharisaical tendencies. We have tendencies to either not associate or to associate at a very safe level with those people that will complicate our lives, whether it's, um, whether it's someone that... Um, we just might totally avoid maybe uh, someone who's all tattooed up and, and a parolee, someone that we just want to cruise on by, someone who's just recently gotten out of prison, or whether it's just someone at work or school or in our neighborhood that is really annoying and is, uh, although we wouldn't perhaps use the phrase uh, out loud in our own minds, they fit into this category of sinner uh, in the passage that, that Mark has just read. So we're going to look at these uh, two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin today. And next week, we're going to look at this parable of the lost son, known as 
known better as the parable of the prodigal son. But let's bow our heads before we get into God's word and hear from uh, his word today. Father in heaven, uh, we again give you praise uh, this morning. And we again uh, confess to you uh, our tendencies to insulate ourselves from those that we should actually be seeking out, that we should be uh, ambulance drivers um, seeking out people who need to believe in Jesus and need to know him and live for him. So we pray today as we look at these parables that you would speak to each of us. I ask that you would bring uh, people to mind, names to mind, people that we would be seeking after, but we ask, Lord, that we would see Jesus today and understand his heart as we look at his word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would open your Bibles to chapter 15 now. We just looked at uh, uh, just a few chapters beyond that. But turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 15. And as I've already mentioned, we're going to look at these two parables uh, today. All three of these parables strategically arranged by Luke, by the Holy Spirit, with this emphasis of lost the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We're just going to look at the first two today. And the setting for all three of these parables comes out in verses 1 and 2. So this is, this is foundational for understanding why Jesus is telling these parables with this emphasis of lostness. Um, the, the foundation is in verses 1 and 2. So let's take a look at those. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So right out of the chute here, we see this massive contrast. We see that Jesus is drawing tax collectors and sinners all around him. And this isn't an isolated thing in verse 1. We find this throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is attracting uh, prostitutes, that he is attracting the downcast of society, they are flocking to him. Uh, when we read tax collectors, we shouldn't really be thinking uh, IRS or IRS agents, as bad as we may have uh, that, that imagery in our minds. Uh, this imagery uh, is, is worse here. Uh, the, the tax collectors in this day would be the IRS combined with uh, the mafia and combined with a massive greed and corruption. These were, these were bad guys who, who cheated and, and who, uh, uh, who, who were looked down upon with great disdain, criminals. So these are the kind of people that are gathering around Jesus. He is a magnet for this kind of people. And if you're like me, the conviction begins to flow in our own minds and hearts. I am preaching to myself this morning as we read this because we don't tend to be magnets for this kind of people. Unfortunately, we often have more in common with verse 2 than we do with verse 1. The Pharisees and the teachers of law, of the teachers of the law, the Bible people, the, the religious experts, they are muttering, This man welcomes sinners. Look at who he's eating with. Because they are concerned with their own holiness. And the way that they thought they should achieve their holiness is by insulating themselves from anything that smacks of this kind of immorality. So this is the setting, this is the stage, this is the foundation for these next three parables. The, the three parables of the lost 
we could call them. So let's look at the first, the first parable. It's very brief. Verse 3. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So we have this beautiful parable of a shepherd. And in this parable, the shepherd uh, represents, this one who is seeking after this lost sheep, represents God, represents the very heart of God. We are kind of opening the Bible today and peeking in to the heart of God. And the heart of God, his heart, is the kind of heart that leaves the 99 who are okay in the open pasture, and he goes out and he seeks after the one that is lost. This is the heart of God. He tells this from the perspective of a shepherd uh, who has a hundred sheep. That would be a modest uh, shepherd in the first century. Um, uh, 200 sheep would be kind of an average uh, amount of uh, size of flock. 300 would be someone that was well-to-do. So this is a modest shepherd in in this parable, in this imagery. But it's unmistakable that his heart is full of love, that his heart is full of compassion, and that he will go after uh, this lost sheep. When he finds this lost sheep, he rejoices, and he brings this back, and we see what is going on in the heart of God, what is going on in heaven with this expression, uh, the summary verse in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So our emphasis is often on the 99. Our emphasis is often on ourselves and on, on, our, um, on our gathered church and on our, our, our small groups. And I, that's all important and that's all a different sermon to emphasize that. But this, this here we're seeing is, is the heart of God and the heart of his people who are going to follow him is to go after that lost one. So that is, that is the first uh, parable. Let's take a look briefly at this, this second one. Beginning in verse 8. In case we missed the theme in the first, um, in the first parable, we get it in the second. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So again, we see a very similar parable. We see the heart of this woman searching for this lost coin. Again, reflecting the heart of God, searching for that person who is lost and who needs to repent. So the two primary themes that come across in both of these parables are repentance and joy. Repentance and joy. And that there is more rejoicing in the heart of God, with the angels of heaven, when one repents, than 99 who are just doing fine. We see in the second parable this, this emphasis on searching. Again, we have a picture of a modest household, of a, um, a, a mod- modest person, modest income level. 
This house probably has no windows. This house is probably made of stone. And so she lights a lamp and she gets after it and she finds this. And when she finds it, we've all had this experience before. where We've lost something and we find it and we're so excited. And she calls a party together to uh, rejoice this. This all emphasizing the heart of God going after the lost. Now let's talk just briefly about how the Pharisees and how we also get off track. The Pharisees are the Bible people. They know the word of God. How are they so off track here? Well, the Pharisees would point to uh, verses and passages like Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. See, this isn't what we're supposed to do. They'd, put, they'd point to Psalm 1. And the New Testament Pharisees, uh, we, we, we have those tendencies. They'd point to passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Let's build the fortress. Let's get the insulation. Here's our verses. This is the tendency of the Pharisees. And this is the tendency of spiritual insulation. So what do we do with these passages? What do we do with these passages? Well, I think the first verse of of this passage that's on the screen is really important, which says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. These passages are not contrary to the the whole host of other passages that call us to seek and to save the lost. They can go together. One commentator has paraphrased it this way, you must not get into double harness with unbelievers. Paraphrase that first verse here in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Another way to put that, you must not get into double harness with with unbelievers. So we have this imagery of, of a couple oxen or a couple horses and this, this yoke. And so what these passages are telling us is that our closest relationships, the intimate relationships that we have, our marriage relationship, we should not enter into marriage with an unbeliever. We should not enter into close business practice or into intimate relations with those who are unbelievers. We shouldn't be walking side by side with them. We need to do that with believers. And we are called to seek and to save the lost. Again, that passage that Mark read, that could be the summary of of Luke's gospel. The, The whole point of the gospel is to seek and to save the lost. So we have got to be careful that we do not follow in the Pharisees' footsteps and put this insulation around us. Uh, We need to be Uh, We need to be rightly understanding these passages that call for us to separate. They're calling us to separate in the sense of our closest people, the people that we hang with, the people that influence us. They have got to be believers. And we are called to be ambulance drivers who go out into this world and to seek and to save the lost. So how do we respond to these couple parables? Uh, What exactly would the Lord have us to do. And I want to have four things I'm going to say, and the rest of our time I want to spend talking about how to respond to this passage. What Pharisees do 
is read the Word of God and study the Word of God. But what believers are called to do is to have the Word of God read our hearts and to change us. So it is not just about knowledge, but it's about changing our hearts and lives because of what the Word of God says. So what do we do in response to this? Well, the first thing um, is we have to love the lost. We have to genuinely love the lost. We are not going to seek and save. We are not going to take the message of repentance and the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to people that we don't love and that we don't care for. We have to love them. The good news is if you have not been doing this at all, or very little, like most of us, I'm talking to myself this morning, first and foremost. Probably for many of us here, it has been a long time since we have, since we have sought after a, a sheep and taken the message of, of repentance to this lost sheep that's somewhere out there that would fit into this category of, of, uh, of tax collectors or, or the immoral. Uh, this could be a colleague again. It doesn't have to be someone that just strictly fits into that category, but it may have been a while. So I want to say to us, I don't want to just make us feel miserable this morning. I want to say to us this morning that there is good news here. There's hope for God to change us, to become like this, to have a heart that loves lost sheep. We see this heart in the Apostle Paul. Uh, Romans chapter 9, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's what we need, church. We need unceasing anguish. Do you have someone's name in, in your mind right now that you, have, that, that you need to have unceasing anguish for? Paul has a whole group of people. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul was a Jew. Paul formerly was a Pharisee. Paul formerly was was um, a, a someone who was a, a certified spiritual insulation in, inspector and, and creator and builder. And he went beyond that. He was a persecutor of the church. But God did something in his life. And he changed his heart so he had unceasing anguish for the Jews. And he's basically saying here, I would rather give up my salvation. I am willing to give up my own salvation if I could see these Jews who've rejected Jesus as the Messiah come to believe in him and be changed. I would give up my own salvation. We need to have a heart like that. Now this is, this is easy to put up in a screen. Uh, it's easy to put up there at this point to love the lost. It's easy uh, to communicate this. But we are dependent upon a work of the Holy Spirit to change us and to give us hearts that are tender, to give us hearts that are compassionate, that, that the Lord would give us an unceasing anguish for that person that I'm praying the Lord has already brought to your mind that you need to seek and call to repentance. I have an image in my own uh, mind of uh, someone who is tremendously uh, compassionate and tender uh, not for the lost, but for animals. And this is my daughter, Gracie. And I asked her permission to share this with you just in case Adam and I were talking about this. You talk about your kids. I don't talk about my kids. but I talk about them. I just have to bribe them to get their permission to talk about them before I talk about them. But uh, this summer, we were all together, my wife's big extended family, and, and the ladies are getting ready to go out for a run, uh, my wife and her uh, sisters. And we've got two dogs, Sugar and Spice, and Michelle takes, uh, if my memory's right, Michelle takes Spice with her on the run. 
And she and her uh, sisters, they go out running. And just sometime later, I hear Gracie, and she is just weeping in the bedroom. Doors closed, and she's weeping. And I'm thinking one of her cousins must have said something to her. She's really sensitive. What's going on? You know, it's one of those cries where it's like, you know, you come quickly, Dad. I mean, this is not the normal cry. I mean, she is weeping. And so she finally calms down, and we begin to have a conversation. And she tells me uh, why she's uh, weeping. She's weeping because Spice didn't get to go on the run, our other dog, with sugar. She is weeping with compassion for the dog that didn't get to go. And the Lord has brought that to my mind and her heart to my mind. This is a picture of her with sugar here. And, and the Lord has brought that to my mind this week as I'm studying, and I'm saying, you know, Lord, I need to have those, that kind of a tender heart for my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, my neighbor Bill that we've been praying for pretty, pretty haphazardly. I need to have those kind of tears for him because then my prayers are not going to be haphazard. But my tears are going to be genuine and they're going to be real. And our family's going to be united in praying for Bill and Jean to come to know Jesus. If they don't already, we don't even know them that well to really even know where their, where their souls are. And I think that many of us here this morning are probably in a similar situation with our neighbors, with our coworkers. We've got to love the lost sheep. This is how God would have us respond to these parables. We've got to love them. Secondly, we've got to find them. Um, We've got to seek them out. We've got to search for the lost. We have to go after them. That is one of the themes. Remember the foundation. We've got the grumbling Pharisees. And now the theme in both of these parables is go and find them. Go and get them. Seek after them. Look at verse 8 again. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? That's a call to faithfulness that we keep going. We've got to search for the lost. You know, the greatest evangelist that I have known personally, and I say he's the greatest because he led me to the Lord, It's a guy named Scott Brister, and I've talked to him. I've I've mentioned him before uh, from here. You may have heard me talk about him. He's a hero of mine. And Scott Brister was an attorney, uh, had never been married, a young attorney in Houston. And his life was centered on seeking and saving the lost. It wasn't on being an attorney. And he had this big apartment, this huge apartment, uh, the kind an attorney could afford, working at a very nice place. And what Scott did with his free time is he went to Rice University and University of Houston and he shared the gospel with young men. And tons of them came to know Christ. And some of them, the most promising of them, moved into his house, in his apartment, and joined this community of disciples in pursuing Jesus and became a part of his church. I mean, I've just never really even seen anybody do anything like that. This isn't Jesus, this is an attorney, but he's basically just living out the, 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 the mission of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel to seek and save the lost in a beautiful way. And he reached me. And I was just down there visiting. I didn't live in Houston. I was visiting a friend. It was 1987. I was a senior in high school. I'm down there visiting a friend who's a freshman. And he, uh, he shares the gospel with me. And I come to know the Lord and my life is forever changed. 
I could go on and on talking about Scott. Um, but let me just, just summarize with this. I went and saw Scott just a couple years ago with my friend. We hadn't seen him in 20 years. And Scott led so many people to the Lord. He remembered us. He knew us well. It wasn't that he had forgotten us. But he had led so many people to Christ that he had forgotten that he had led my friend Greg and I both to the Lord, both of whom were later called uh, to ministry. He led so many people to the Lord, he didn't even, didn't even know, uh, you know who, who all he's done that with. Now, why do I share that? To make us feel miserable? Because none of us are like that. That's not why I'm sharing that, right? I'm not like him, and you're probably not like him. If you were, our church would look different, right? And, and we would know about this. Uh, none of us quite have that gifting and that management ability and that kind of vision. Uh, no, nobody here that I know of has that. So I'm not sharing with that to make us feel miserable. In fact, I'm sharing this story in part to say one of our problems is we hear stories like that and we think, well, I'm going to leave the seeking and the saving and the lost part to guys like Scott Brister. But, but the Bible d- doesn't leave that as an option for us. The Bible is calling us here in these parables and in so many places to seek and save the lost. But we're, we're not going to probably do it, most of us, like Scott Brister did. We're going to do it in different ways. And so I want to point us to one other person, a guy some of you may have heard of, a guy named William Carey, another modest person. He, uh, from England, was a uh, cobbler, shoe repairman. But God had given him a heart to seek and save the lost in India. And so he uh, goes to India, and he labors there for seven years with not one single conversion. Not one. But he remained faithful. And God gave him a love for people, and God gave him a love for the the people of India, and he gave him burden and passion, and he remained faithful. And I think in our minds, we need to have people like the Apostle Paul who are persecuting the church and who are totally out there, and God totally changes their heart toward the lost, He does the same thing with this guy who now is known as the founder of modern missions. This guy who had no theological training, formal training. He just had a heart and a passion. God gave him a love for the lost. And he remained faithful for seven years. And so I think William Carey is somebody that we should have in our minds. That we may need to be faithful for a long time without seeing any fruit. Without seeing a neighbor come to Christ but we still need to work hard at seeking and saving the lost sheep, the lost coin, that soul that the Lord has brought to our minds, those neighbors and colleagues and friends and classmates who need Jesus Christ. So we love the lost sheep. We've got to find the lost sheep. And then we also need to return the lost sheep. Now, the the, the theme in addition to lostness and joy which is in this parable, the other theme that's in, this, in both of these uh, parables is repentance. And some of us, we, we do well at, at living the Christian life. Th- those, uh, those people that we know who are without Christ and without hope, they know we're believers. They know we have different standards, perhaps. They know that we love Christ. They know that we're kind. They probably trust us. But many of us don't go to that next place where we would ask them to trust in Christ, where we would have a conversation, where we've prayed and we've prayed and we've asked them to meet us at Starbucks or to go for a walk or to go for breakfast or lunch or whatever, and we would just look them in the eyes and say, 
you know, what, what is keeping you from repenting of living for yourself and turning your life over to Christ? Well, would, 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 you be, would you be willing to pray and, and, and do that right now? And, and, and believe it or not, when we do that, some of us have never done that in our lives, when we do that, not always, but sometimes they say yes. They say yes. And then there is rejoicing in their life and in our life. And there is a baptism and there is a whole new orientation of life. That's what happened in my life. That's what happened in many of your lives. And so we need to actually bring the gospel, a message of repentance and faith to those who are lost. I love this imagery in this parable of the sloshed sheep um, around the uh, shoulders uh, being brought back to the 99 who the shepherd also loves the 99, but his heart is for this lost one and he's bringing that lost one back. And I do have an image in my mind. A couple of you may have an image in your mind. Uh, I'm looking at Keith and maybe a couple others of you. This isn't a sheep, but I have an image. I'm going to show you a picture of someone in our congregation here with a puppy around his uh, shoulders here. Uh, Randall, again, a picture of, of tenderness and compassion. So we're on this long, long hike. This picture's from a couple years ago, and we're, his dog is just losing it and limping and behind us. And, and Randall, with his compassionate heart, gets that dog and throws him over his shoulders and is carrying Sky back home. And then this image, again, just comes to my mind as I'm, as I'm reading this parable. I do have to confess that I'm more likely to hop onto my dog's back than I am to put my dog over my shoulders if I'm hiking uh, out in the backcountry. But we need to have this gospel message where we ask someone to believe and to repent. And we also need to have uh, this heart of love. This is what we see here, a heart of love for the individual. This personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what we emphasize in churches like ours. And sometimes people point fingers at us and say, oh, an individual relationship with Jesus, where do you find that in the Bible? We find it right here. We find a God who has a heart for individuals to seek and to save them and to nurture the individual to go after. That is his heart. And then finally, um, we need to celebrate the lost, the lost return. Uh, we need to experience this joy that we learned about last week is a lagging indi- indicator in the Christian life. We learned last week if we want joy, we don't actually seek after joy, but we seek after Jesus Christ. And we seek after His Word. And we memorize and we dwell on those portions of His Word that we need for ourselves when we're discouraged, when we're depressed, when we're down, so that we can come out of that and that, so that we can have joy. So joy is a lagging indicator of serving Christ, but joy is also a lagging indicator of seeking and saving the lost. So, so part of the way that joy comes about in the believer's life The way that there is rejoicing in heaven and rejoicing in the church and rejoicing in our hearts is when we see the lost coming to know him. This is part of the plan for living out the Christian life. And we need to have more and more celebrations here. And we need to have more and more testimonies. And I want to just share one, and I'm going to close with this, just share a testimony about uh, tapasui. You don't know what tapasui is. That's not a famous uh, food dish. But Tapasui has been attending our church the last few weeks and months. She texted me this morning. She couldn't be here today. She's not feeling real well today. But she was going to share her story with you. And so I'm just going to briefly share her story with you and close with joy in our hearts. This is a a young lady who grew up Hindu. And she is a lost sheep. 
And one day, some people, three people, she now calls them the three wise men, came and knocked on her door at her house. She doesn't know them from anybody. Turns out they're students from the Weimar Institute. And they are coming to share the gospel. And they come and they share the gospel with her and they say, well, can we come back? And they come back and they, she and her mother sit around God's word as they open it and share the gospel with her. And her life is completely changed. She comes to know the Lord Jesus. She, she uh, has, was attending down at uh, Granite Bay at the Seventh-day Adventist Church down there with them. She's been attending here the last few months. Her life has been transformed and changed. There has been rejoicing in heaven. Um, I'm trying to think of the things that she was going to share with you uh, today. But here she is just out there. She's just out there. Um, you know, there's lots of churches that are functioning. We've got our, we've got our parking spots for the, the guests to come in. But the, but the image that we have in the New Testament is that we're to be ambulance drivers going out to them. And we're not all going to go and knock on doors, but we all have people that we can go and we can share the gospel with and see their lives changed and rejoice. We are able to do that. God is looking for us to be faithful. And he's looking to give us, through the power of his Holy Spirit, a love to do that same thing. Let's bow our heads and ask him to do that in us. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your heart that you seek and save the lost. We thank you that you've helped us to see our pharisaical tendencies, our tendencies to insulate ourselves from others who we might think of as overwhelming, as immoral, as just problematic, as just a nuisance. Lord, free us from that. Free us from a theology that says we're going to be contaminated. Help us to take the light of the gospel where it has not been. Lord, I pray specifically for those of us who, who this is just a, a terrifying thing, this is just a nervous thing, that you would free us from that and that we would have joy and that we would have passion to talk very simply about the love of Jesus and his call for repentance and his call to faith. We pray that you would help us to do that and to remain faithful until we find the lost sheep, until we find the lost coin, until we have rejoicing. Lord, I pray that right now that there would be individual names that would be coming to mind and that we would not cease, like William Carey, if it takes seven years, whatever it takes, that we would seek to find, that we would keep seeking until we find, and then we would rejoice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.